thank you so much for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who has promised that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And now, Father, as we open your word, we've enjoyed the fellowship of sisters in Christ already, and now we come for the sole purpose of opening your word and learning about your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see how very little is actually found in the Word of God regarding his childhood and his pre-ministerial life. And as we discover that, we're going to find out how true is the statement that the Bible was not written in order to satisfy our curiosity. Because, of course, there are many things we would like to know about his childhood and all the years before he was 30 years of age. But the Bible wasn't written to satisfy curiosity. It was written in order to sanctify our conduct. And so, Father, now I would just pray that your Holy Spirit would do just that, that he would make us more and more holy, sanctify our conduct as we look at the conduct of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as he was a small child and how he was obedient, not only to his earthly parents, but mostly to his heavenly Father. And I just pray, Lord, that you would have your will and way in each heart here. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we turn to this lesson, number eight in our study, uh, entitled The Silent Years, we are going to look at the few verses in Scripture which give us what little information we do have regarding the first 30 years of the Lord's life. And as we do this, we're going to look at four different categories or four different, different phases of the Lord's life. In Luke chapter 2, so you want to open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 2, verse 40, we're going to discuss Jesus the child. Jesus the child. And then in verses 41 to 51, we're going to discuss the one event, the single event that we have in Scripture regarding Jesus as an adolescent. Then in Luke 2.52, we're going to talk about the verse which summarizes the entire life of Jesus from the age of 12 years to 30 years. Only one verse in all of Scripture about those 18 years. And then we'll flip real quickly over to Mark 6.3 as we mention what little bit we know about Jesus as a carpenter. So that's where we're headed. Let's start by looking at Luke 2.40, Jesus the child. Luke 2:40. It says, "And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him." Only from Luke, who remember portrays Jesus Christ as the son of God, I mean the son of man, excuse me, do we really learn anything about the childhood years of Jesus Christ from Luke? Now that makes sense since Luke is writing regarding Jesus as the son of man. So only from Luke do we learn about the years, let's say approximately three years of age when he maybe returned from Egypt. I don't know, he could have been three to six, somewhere in there. But let's say for our purposes, he was about three years of age when he returned from Egypt to 12. We do have one incident, you know, when he was 12 years old, you all know what that is. But otherwise, we only have from Luke those childhood years, three to 12. The fact of the matter is we only have one verse and that's the one we just read, Luke 2.40, which summarizes those first nine or ten years of his life, other than his birth, you know, his in infancy. We have quite a bit about that. Um, and that verse says that he grew, and he waxed strong in spirit, and he was filled with wisdom, and what else? The grace of God was upon him. Now, the Greek word which Luke used for grew is actually a medical word. It's a... <clears throat> It's a, a doctor's word, a physician's word. And again, that makes sense because Luke, you remember, was a physician. 
The word in Greek specifically refers to physical growth, which all normal children experience. You know, growth which is beyond their control. Children, of course, cannot prevent themselves from physical development, can they? I mean, they can't stop growing. They can't even accelerate. A lot of times they don't want to stop growing. They want to accelerate their growth. But they, of course, have no um, control over that. Growth of nature just simply occurs. It involves no responsibility on the part of the one doing the growing. <clears throat> now, although the Lord Jesus Christ is God, and although he began his earthly life as a perfect, sinless child, yet Luke was telling his readers, reminding his readers, that um, I thought that was, I got that off the internet. Isn't that a beautiful picture, if you can see it? <clears throat> he was reminding his readers that still he was a child. The Lord Jesus was a child. He didn't burst in upon humanity as a mature adult, as who did? Anybody know? Who, who, who burst in upon humanity as a full-grown adult? Right, Adam. He didn't, Jesus could have come that way, but he didn't. He, um, he went through all the particular growth processes which any normal child would experience. He willingly submitted himself to the limitations of physical growth and development which are common to all of us. You know, there was a day when Jesus took his first step. There was a day when he uttered his first word. <clears throat> so he did subject, he, limit, he purposely limited himself because, you know, you have to remember on the on the divine side, he was God. He didn't have to do this, so he willingly subjected himself to all of this so that he could identify himself with, with mankind and what we go through. Just as he also willingly subjected himself to the one commandment in Scripture, which is given specifically to children. It was the first one I had my own children memorize. And what is it, children? Ephesians 6, 1. Children? Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You know that one, don't you, girls? And boy. <laughs> now, John Butler, in his commentary on the Lord, says this. He says, quote, that Christ would condescend to take upon him a human body and that he would endure the slow day-by-day -day development of the body before he could begin his ministry rebukes every particle of pride and impatience that is found in all of us. He who was so great that he could speak the galaxies into space in an instant simply by a word from his mouth in his carnation, incarnation humbled himself to have a human body and patiently waited for it to develop before he began his ministry. End of quote. And that's a lesson to all of us too, isn't it? To be patient and to be humble. I mean, he could have just come to humanity, a full adult, and immediately began his ministry but he purposely went through all the normal things that you and I go through and our children go through. Now, based upon our knowledge of the Lord's stamina <clears throat> and his endurance as an adult from the years of 30 to 33, we realize that very good foundations were laid early in his childhood, speaking uh, physically here. Now, his recorded ministry travels across some very difficult Israeli terrain. If you've ever been to Israel, you know that the, the topography there, whoops, is very difficult. I mean, a lot of mountains and it's a lot of hills. <clears throat> it's not an easy place. It wouldn't be like being out in Iowa or something where it's just all flat. And uh, what they've done is they've taken the four Gospels, men have done this, and they have calculated 
by piecing together all the different accounts about where the Lord traveled. And of course, not everywhere he traveled is given to us in the scripture. But they roughly come up with the fact that in three and a half years of his public ministry, he traveled some 2,500 miles. <clears throat> now that's just within the course of three and a half years. And what else do we have to take into consideration? It was all done on foot. So, you know, if you ever see pictures of Jesus that make him look like a little milk toast of a guy, you know, real skinny and wimpy, those aren't accurate. He, he, he could not have endured what he endured and have been um, not in good physical condition. <clears throat> so when you consider his physical mileage in those three and a half years, in conjunction with the fact that he was continually thronged about by multitudes of people who he was, you know, endlessly giving of himself to by way of his teaching and by way of his preaching and by way of his love for them and his compassion for them and his healing ministries you know energy's constantly going out of him as he's healing them both spiritually and physically when you take all that into consideration then you further can understand how necessary it was that his early life was one of good physical growth and waxing strength. Certainly, we know that Jesus had to be strong uh, just to be able to face those 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness without any food and probably very little water. <clears throat> and that was followed by what? The great temptation of, of battling with his foe, Satan. And of course, he was victorious over that. So he was no wimp by any means. Then compounded with the <clears throat> physical strain of his public ministry was, of course, the additional emotional stress of his life. Take that into consideration. I mean, he, he encountered an awful lot of rejection and uh, probably even as a little child would hear comments from other Nazarene children about, you know, that he didn't have a father or that he was, a, you know, a called a bastard. The, all of this and, and he knew from the very beginning he knew that he was on earth to do what to die headed all the all the way to the cross and he he understood how would you like to know that your whole life that you're headed toward a terrible painful horrible death and and rejection by your own people and so um so take all that into consideration and you know what kind of a person he had to be physically, emotionally, and he had to be strong. Now Luke continued to say that the young Jesus was also filled with wisdom. And in the Greek, the verb tense literally renders Luke 2.40 like this. This is what it actually says. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, becoming filled with wisdom. The Lord Jesus increased in wisdom. I better save my outline. Oh, I did save it. Okay. He increased in wisdom just as he did in age and just as he did in stature. You know, this is, of course, speaking. You have to remember he's the God-man. So this is speaking in regard to his humanity and not to his deity because we know as God, the, uh, the one who has eternal wisdom, he didn't have any need to grow in wisdom, did he? You know, on his divine side, he was all-knowing, all-wise. But what we're talking about here, of course, is in his humanity, he was constantly growing in wisdom. And this is true also of his growth spiritually. 
Now, on the divine side, he didn't need to grow spiritually. He's God. But on the human side, he did need to grow spiritually. It actually is very interesting. Um, we, we find that with respect to his humanity, he was gaining knowledge. He was becoming, as he grew physically, he was also gaining knowledge. He was becoming wiser and wiser through the years of his growth. And I know you're going to do this in your homework, but if you want to, while I'm talking, look at Isaiah 11. We did look at Isaiah 11, 1 last week. That talks about the, the branch, you know, the rod from the stem of Jesse. But if you go on to look at verses 1 and 3, it tells us that this branch, the, the Messiah, would be one who would have the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding. I think it's in verse 3 that it says he would be quick of understanding. All this is, uh, you know, prophetic, really, about the Lord Jesus Christ and the way that uh, he did gain knowledge and wisdom. And, you know, he had a very high IQ. He would have a very high IQ, right, because he was sinless the smartest man ever to walk this earth. So with respect to his humanity, Christ was gaining knowledge. He was becoming wiser and wiser. And one way in which he grew wiser <clears throat> was, as it's true with us as well as children, one way he grew wiser was through observation. As a youngster, Jesus must have been very, very observant. And I can say this, and I can say it dogmatically, because when he began his teaching ministry, he often taught by way of parables, right? And the parables that he spoke demonstrated that he had, a, you know, he had a detailed observation of life. He had been watching people and watching um, nature. He knew, for example, about rich men and what their natures basically were like, <clears throat> and poor men like beggars and. He knew about um, farmers and seeds, and he knew about oxen falling into pits and men even on the Sabbath going and pulling them out, and he knew about plows and, and yokes and all kinds of things like that. He was very observant, and so we know as a child he was very observant. And then the young Jesus also learned, <clears throat> as we do, by asking questions. And we're going to see this evidenced by his experience when he was 12 years old. We're going to look at that a little bit later this, um, this morning. <clears throat> he also learned by receiving instruction from others. Not only grew physically, but he grew intellectually. <clears throat> he took information from life, what he observed, and he applied it to his own life. And that's what wisdom is really all about, right? You can have knowledge, but if you don't apply that knowledge to your own life, you don't have wisdom. Wisdom is applying what you learn to your own life. <clears throat> so although Jesus was God in human flesh, and he could have bypassed all growth processes, yet we find he willingly subjected himself to a human body and to the, uh, to, um, the life experiences that we all have. He did not simply... Oops, I must be missing, I think I'm missing a picture. Anyway, he did not just simply appear in this world as, uh, well, I already gave you this scenario. He didn't come to earth as a full adult, but neither did he come into this world as an infant with an adult mind. And that would be another possibility. That would, that would be kind of strange. My children, there's this picture of me when I was, I don't have many pictures when I was little, but there was one of me, and I'm, I'm only about yay big, 
I don't know, I look like I'm about three years old, and my children say, Mother, you look exactly the same. It's like a little kid with an adult head on it. <laughs> and I look at it, and it's true. I do. I look like I have just an adult head on me. Anyway, he could have done that. He could have been an infant with an adult head, <laughs> you know, an adult brain. Uh, nor did he come physically, as I said, as a grown man. Jesus, the very word of God, just like you and I, he had to learn how to speak. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn, you know, he had to be potty trained if you get right down to it. <clears throat> his wisdom and his knowledge came to him by degrees, although accelerated greatly because of the fact that he was sinless. So, I mean, all you had to do was tell him something once, and he instantly got it. And that, of course, was the very significant difference between him and us. He was sinless, and so his, his, uh, his growth in every way, whether it was, well, physical would be normal, but of course he would never get any diseases or sickness. Think about that, because of the fact that he was sinless. But um, his intellectual growth, his social growth, his spiritual was absolutely flawless because of his perfection because of his sinlessness. And that's a little hard for us to get a grasp of, isn't it? I mean, because it's, it's just hard to, to, to understand the mystery of the God-man because we have finite minds. Now, the last beautiful touch that Luke presented in his one verse regarding Christ's early life from about 3 to 12 was that the grace of God was upon him. The grace of Almighty God was in a very, very special way upon this unique child. Now, I think the grace of God is upon all children, but it was even more specially upon this special child because he was the only child ever born without sin. And you say, well, what about Adam? Adam wasn't born, right? Remember we said he doesn't have a didn't have a belly button. He, he wasn't born. He was created. <laughs> he was created without sin. So Jesus Christ is the only man who was ever born without sin and in a very 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 special way because he was God's son the grace of God was upon him at the time of Jesus Christ now let's have a little setting here I just want to give you you know a picture of what his life was like at the time of Christ there were um, four main areas in Israel and we've talked about some of these already there was Galilee to the north and there was Samaria, which was somewhat in the center area of Israel. Then there was Judea to the south, and over to the east was the province of Perea. Now, Nazareth, of course, you know, because we talked about this last week, where the Lord spent most of his life by far, and where he spent these silent years of his childhood, was located in the northern province up there in Galilee. And Galilee was just is if you've ever been there how many of you have ever been to israel okay several galilee is absolutely breathtaking isn't it it's just beautiful it is a beautiful beautiful place <clears throat> especially around the sea of galilee where the lord jesus we know spent much of his earthly years of public ministry now, nazareth wasn't real close if you can see where nazareth wasn't real close to the sea of galilee now, there were some 240 villages and towns in the area of Galilee at the time of Jesus Christ. And the Galilean Jews, now remember there's many Gentiles in Galilee, but the Galilean Jewish people were said to be happier people than the Judean Jews, you know, the ones living down in Judea. And they say one of the main reasons for that is because there were so very few priests 
living among them. The priests, along with the other religious rulers, preferred to live down in Judea, you know, so they could be closer to Jerusalem and closer to the temple. And they say that even the scribes and the Pharisees who lived up in uh, Galilee were not as strict. They weren't as rigid in their opinions about the law and everything else as those, who, those scribes and Pharisees and religious rulers who lived down in Judea. There were also Gentile cities such as Tiberias and Scythopolis and uh, Ptolemais, which was on the coast over here. I didn't draw that on there. These were primarily Gentile cities up in Galilee. And the result of the heavy population of Gentiles in Galilee was that there was, among the people, less of an aversion. I'm speaking of the Jewish people. The Jewish people had less of an aversion to Gentiles than their Judean counterparts. You know, the Judean Jews thought of the Gentiles as dogs, and they didn't really care for them. But the, the, the Jews who lived with the Gentiles up in Galilee um, understood that these were people too, you know, and they had more of a heart for them toward their neighbors. They were more open-minded and open-hearted toward the, the Gentiles. And an example of this is found in Luke 7 with regard to the Roman centurion who came to Jesus and said, my servant is sick, you know, I know you can heal him with just a word. And the Jewish people held this Roman centurion in high esteem. They, uh, they really liked him and they, they commended him to Jesus. And they said he even built our synagogue. So you see, there was a, a better relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles up in Galilee. So Galileans tended to be more in tune with ethical and moral matters than they were with the ritualistic and the ceremonial matters which so preoccupied and concerned the Judean Jews, especially the religious leaders of Judea. And perhaps this is why most of the Lord's disciples, you know, 12 out, 11 out of 12 of them were what? They were Galileans. There was only one Judean among them, and who was he? Judas of Iscariot. Iscariot is in, Ju in Judea. He was the only Judean Jew uh, disciple, I should say, of the Lord. Overall, Galilean Judaism, <clears throat> the, relig the, the religion that they practiced, was more noble and it was more pure in heart than the Judaism which was practiced by the Jews down in Judea, you know, especially around the temple area in Jerusalem. Now the region of uh, Galilee is 60 miles long and it's only 30 miles wide, so it's not really huge. You have to remember the whole area of Israel is only about the size of the state of New Jersey. So we're not speaking of great mileage here, about 60 miles by 30 miles. And of the four provinces of Israel, it experienced the coolest temperatures. It was a nice temperature. It doesn't get real, real cold, just kind of cool. And it also contains the, um, the, the richest soil. <clears throat> it, Galilee is rich in a lot of things. It was rich in, um, in, in uh, sheep, rich in fish, you know, from the Sea of Galilee, rich in um, mountains, and, and just rich in, in beauty very very picturesque and you'll enjoy this they say that Galilee um, it compares when they look at the map of the world they say Galilee compares most to the Piedmont area of the Carolinas and Virginia now that's getting close to home isn't it 
And I do think this is a beautiful state. North Carolina is a little bit of heaven. Well, it's, they say it's very similar to Galilee. And the annual precipitation, just in case you're curious, is about 25 inches of rain a year in Galilee. Now, the house in which the Lord Jesus probably lived would be very similar to the houses which are still in Nazareth. And I have been to Nazareth. Were either of you in Nazareth? I remember drinking from the one and only well in Nazareth. And, and there's no doubt about the fact that that would have been the same well which the Lord Jesus would have drunk out of. That's a, that was an interesting experience. I remember going to the, the Baptist church there in Nazareth, and it was one of the most wonderful experiences of my life. I was with my husband and my son, and uh, in the church we sang Amazing Grace, and I just had goosebumps all over me. But the homes today are still very similar to the homes that would have been in existence at the time of Jesus Christ. They were square in shape, and they were built of stone or brick with a single door and just a few windows, if they even had windows, any windows. They generally had dirt floors, which were covered with mats upon which the, the people, the inhabitants of the home, slept at night. They would sleep on the mats. Now, the tops of the houses were and still are today flat, as you can see in that picture. And to get to the rooftops, You'd come out of your house and you'd climb. There was always an external staircase to get up to the top of your house. And people, the family, would spend their evenings together up on their, their rooftops. They'd probably bring some chairs up there or whatever because it was cooler up there. And uh, they would just enjoy being up there. And what made it especially nice was that their neighbors were all up on their rooftops at night. And so in the homes were close together and you could just speak to your whole neighborhood up from your rooftops. Now, wouldn't that be fun? And <laughs> look at the stars. <laughs> and it was generally pretty nice outside, you know, so it was just a nice way to spend their evenings. Actually, they, they say that uh, most of the family life was spent on the rooftop. About the only thing they did down inside of the home was uh, they slept in the, inside. I suppose on certain evenings, maybe they even slept up there. But most of the time they slept down below. Of course, they went down below if the weather was bad and it was raining or whatever. And they got dressed down below. You would like to know that. <laughs> and they cooked down below. But everything else, pretty much, they spent the, the, their family life up on the rooftop. Isn't that a song? on the rooftop. <laughs> All right, now, there were at least eight members in Jesus' family, at least. Uh, and we know this from Matthew 13, verses 55 and 56. We are told in those verses that Jesus had at least four brothers, and we're given their names. James, who happened to be the author of the book of James, the little epistle which follows Hebrews, was one of his brothers. There was a brother named Joseph, or Joseph, so he was like Joseph Jr. We don't know very much, we don't know really anything about him. Um, and then there was another bro brother named Simon, and we know even less about him. And a fourth brother named Jude, and he wrote the little book of Jude, which comes right before Revelation. <clears throat> Can you imagine? Mary and Joseph had. Well, they had a lot of children, but three of their children, one was the, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, one was James, who wrote the book of James, and one was Jude. Wow. That's pretty. They, they must have been godly parents. Mm. Anyway, um, we know that they, he had at least two half-sisters. Now, of course, these are half-brothers. 
and he had at least two half sisters because it says he had sisters. So we know it has to be like at least two. Could have been more, but at least two. So he he grew up with at least six siblings. Now the other sisters and brothers were all conceived the natural way. You know, they had a they had a human father and they had a human mother, and so therefore all of them were born with the Adamic sin nature. And there's a world of difference between them and the virgin born Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So with at least six sinful half-brothers and sisters, Jesus probably grew up in very cramped quarters because those houses weren't very big. They were just little small and especially knowing that they weren't very wealthy, it was cramped. Yet he emerged from that total experience without sin. And if you have multiple children, how many of you have more than one child? Or you came from a family with more than one child, <laughs> then you will know that this very well may have been a more difficult experience and situation for Jesus to be victorious over as far as <laughs> temptation to sin than his actual temptation with Satan in the wilderness. <laughs> Can you imagine growing up in a family with seven kids minimum in one little square house and still maintaining your sinlessness? I can't, I just can't imagine that. I mean, my kids are adults and they still fight with each other. <laughs> so this is, this is incredible. If you think about the fact that Jesus, and Jesus was the oldest and that's, I'm an old, oldest child, that's, that's a hard responsibility too because you're kind of held responsible for your younger brothers and sisters and a lot of times you get blamed for something that they do or if they get hurt, you get blamed for not watching them. A lot of responsibility there. But he never ever once, not even once, got angry outwardly or inwardly. You know, you have to remember too, sinning is inside. He didn't even have an angry thought. He didn't even have a bad attitude. He uh, never, never struck out at any of them. And I can imagine knowing children, and the other children were sinful, that they might have provoked him, tried to provoke him to anger, or tried to provoke him to sin. I'm sure it was very difficult for those children living with a perfect brother. I mean, that would be tough. Always got straight A's, always did everything perfect, was, you know, high IQ, everything, and never, mommy's little boy, can you hear him teasing him? Or even maybe throwing rocks at him, trying to pull on his hair, something to get him angry. And all this maybe was preparing him for what he would endure later on with all the rejection. But he never lost his cool, he never once sinned. And we know this because we know he lived a perfectly sinless life, and that includes his childhood. So this gives you a little bit of an idea of the absolute perfection of Jesus Christ. Never had even a tinge of jealousy or a small grudge in his heart even toward one of those brothers or sisters. Um, all right, now, the Lord's first instruction would have come, growing up, would have come from his mother Mary, who would have taught him to chant the Psalms, uh, and to learn the basics of Hebrew, not Hebrew, Hebrew law and Hebrew history. Hebrew by now was a dead language, so she wasn't teaching him Hebrew, she was teaching him Jewish law and history. And then at the age of six years old, he would have been sent to what was called the house of the book, where he would stay through the age of 10. 
And in the house of the book, the rulers of the local synagogue there in Nazareth would teach the young boys the Old Testament scriptures. And for five years, every male Jewish child did nothing but memorize, memorize, memorize the Old Testament scripture. And that, that was great. I mean, especially the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the books written by Moses. And they were drilled and drilled and they memorized until they knew the law inside out. And then at the age of 12, a boy became um, known as a son of the law. And this important time in his life was and is yet today in Jewish, those who obey the Jewish rules and everything, that is celebrated by what is called the bar mitzvah. The young boy, 12-year-old boy, is robed in gar the garments of a man, and from that point on, he is regarded as a free moral agent who is responsible for his own actions, his own words, his own deeds. It's what I guess we refer to as the age of what? Accountability, 12 years of age. Now, the language that Jesus commonly spoke, his everyday language, would have been Aramaic. Hebrew, by that time, as I just said, was a dead language. And, you know, it's never, this has never, ever happened in the whole history of humanity since the beginning of time that a dead language was resurrected to life. But people do speak Hebrew today. That never happened. Just like a nation that died was never resurrected and came back to life. And Israel has come back to life, came back to life in 1948. So we know... I mean, if you ever doubt God's, that this is God's book or that God is in control, just think of those two things. That's a miracle that Hebrew is spoken again and Israel's a nation again. Uh, so by that time, Hebrew was dead and it was really, it was a dead language. It was only spoken by the very religious, I mean, the very, uh, yeah, very religious and very edu educated Jewish scholars, just like Latin. You know, Latin's a dead language today, but the very educated do bother to learn it. Um, however, we know that Jesus was acquainted with Hebrew because some of his quotations from the Old Testament refer directly to the original Hebrew. We also know that he knew Greek. Now, Greek was the, the common language of the entire Roman Empire. And this, because of the fact that he knew Greek, this is what made it possible for him to speak to the Roman centurion, for example, um, to speak to Pontius Pilate. Now, Pontius Pilate didn't speak Italian because he was Roman, he spoke Greek. This made it possible for the Lord Jesus to speak to the Gentile peoples, such as the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now, he did not have a university or a seminary education, for example, as did the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had the wonderful privilege at sitting, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, who was, they say, one of the smartest men of his day. However, because Jesus displayed such an exceptional mastery of the scriptures, we do realize that he really had more than the equivalent of a university or a seminary education. In his unique situation, Jesus was really self-taught. You know, humanly speaking, he was self-taught from a book which, divinely speaking, he himself wrote. You know, he really did. He's the author of the scripture. But as a human, he had to study it and memorize it and learn it. He had not only had to, to learn to read it, but to, you know, he had to drill on it and meditate over his own, very own words. That's unique to think about. 
And once again, that's another mysterious aspect of the God-man, which is really too difficult for us to understand and comprehend and even appreciate, really. Okay, that was uh, Jesus the child. Let's look now at Jesus the adolescent. So would you look with me at verses 41, Luke chapter 2, 41 to 51. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, this is his parents, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thus why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, now these are the first recorded words we have from Jesus Christ. How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. Stop there. The spiritual devotion, really, of uh, Joseph and Mary, and we see here, set a very good example for their son, their special son, and, of course, really for all of their children. Because Luke tells us that they took the journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem every year every year, both of them, in order to, to observe the Passover. Now, the law of God back in Deuteronomy 16, 16, and also in Exodus chapter 23, the law of God required the attendance of all Jewish men of Israel at three feasts during the year. So the law, according to the law, every Jewish man from 12 years of age up had to attend, was supposed to attend, um, the t go to the temple in Jerusalem and attend three feasts. And those three feasts were the Passover, which lasted for eight days, and um, then the, the, uh, celebrate the Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, booths. Now, not everyone obeyed that law, okay? They were supposed to three times a year make the trip, but not everyone did. However, we find that Joseph did. Furthermore, women were not required to attend those three feasts because, you know, the law understood that the women needed to be home with the small children, etc. However, even though the women were not required to attend these feasts, we find that Mary did. Mary attended every year with her husband. That's what the scripture tells us. So she was kind of like Hannah, you know, the mother of Samuel, who attended the feast every year with her husband. Now, this really demonstrates to us their joint interest in spiritual matters and their faithfulness, both to the law and to the house of God, to the temple, that each year they, they did do these, these trips to Jerusalem. 
Now, when Jesus turned 12 years old and was therefore considered a son of the law, he joined his parents in this pilgrimage to the holy city. And he, he went with them to also attend the Passover in Jerusalem. He was now responsible before the law. He was responsible for himself. He was expected to observe the ceremonial law and, and attend the annually prescribed festivals in Jerusalem. So that's why we find him with his parents. Now, as far as we know, this was the Lord's first visit to the temple in Jerusalem since he was an infant of 40 days. It's possible he had accompanied his parents when he was younger on their trips to Jerusalem, but we don't know that. This is the first recorded event of his, his um, visit to the temple since he was 40 days old. When he arrived, when Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus, arrived in the great city, he eagerly sought out those who were scripturally learned men, called here doctors of the law. doesn't mean they were medical doctors. They were teachers of the law who taught in the court of the temple. Now, not being of the Levitical priesthood, Jesus could not enter into the temple proper itself. But what, what they did is they had rooms or courts around the temple where people, the regular people, could be taught by the religious leaders. And this was just at certain times of the year that the religious leaders would go out in these courts or in these rooms and they would um, teach the people directly. The people actually looked forward to these times when they could have question and answer sessions with the, um, the scholars of the law. And the Passover was a particular time when these these fellows made their, themselves available. So this was where the 12-year-old Jesus was when his parents realized on their return trip to Nazareth that he was missing. Now, many people have read this account of the 12-year-old Jesus, and they've wondered how in the world could his parents not have known that he was not with them when they left Jerusalem. In fact, it says that they had traveled an entire day's journey before they realized that he was not with them. So they say, how is this possible? Well, it was possible because of the manner in which Passover pilgrims traveled from their respective homes to the holy city, to Jerusalem. For one thing, they traveled in uh, large caravans. Now, that's just people attending the feast. I'll put that back up in a minute, but here's sort of a picture that I could find of them traveling in a caravan. And, uh, of course, that would make the whole thing more enjoyable, wouldn't it? You know, especially if, you, if you're coming all the way from Galilee somewhere, it would be to your advantage to travel in a large caravan because this would help prevent robbers from robbing you. It would protect you against, it's kind of like I think of the covered wagons, you know, the trains of covered wagons that would go out west. It would uh, protect you against wild animals, robbers, that people would be able to assist one another in making the plans for the big trip. And uh, it would be exciting, you know, it would be something to look forward to, to this, this journey um, and fellowship with other women and, and uh, the children would probably be excited about traveling with each other. And they could help with small children, they could help each other with sicknesses and all that sort of thing. So it made, it made sense that they traveled in big caravans. And it, while they were traveling, usually the men, we see this is still true today, you know, how men migrate to each other and they are having their conversations. So the men would basically travel with each other. And then the women would travel with each other. And, and the little children, the smaller children, would, of course, be with the women. So what very likely happened in the case of, of uh, Jesus missing is that Mary 
knowing that he was now a son of the law, because he was 12 years old, she would assume that he was probably traveling with Joseph and the other men and boys 12 years of age and up. Whereas Joseph, you know, seeing that Jesus was not with him, what would he probably assume? That he was with his mother. You know, he was the oldest child, and she maybe had other, some of the other children with her. So he probably thought, well, he just turned 12, and he's still with his mother, and he's probably assisting her with the, the other children or whatever. And so each assumed that he was with the others, or maybe they assumed he was with the boys his own age, you know, walking with them along the way. So this could explain how neither of them realized that he was absent until they had gone an entire day's journey. Now, when the caravan of tired pilgrims stopped to camp for the first night, this is after the Passover is over, and it was an eight-day-long thing, and they're on their way back, and they've traveled a whole day back toward Nazareth, that, and, and when they would stop for the night, of course, the, the mothers and fathers would get together, come together to sleep together the night camp. I don't know if they had a tent or whatever they did, but Mary and Joseph would now come together and look for Jesus. And this, Where is he? You don't have him? Have you ever done that? Have you ever left church and forgotten one of your children? <laughs> we've done it because we've gone separately. So I thought, actually, one time they left me. When my kids started driving, one of the, they, they left and they thought I was with my husband, that I'd come home with him. And he left because he thought I was going to go home with one of them. And there I was stranded at the church. But we've done that. We've left kids because I thought they went home with Frank and he left because he thought they went home with me. Anyway, so you can understand how this would happen. Well, when they came together at nights, where's Jesus? Neither one of them had him. And then it says that they, uh, they searched the whole camp. i got to get here where I'm supposed to be on these. Okay, that's sort of where we are. They searched the whole camp over. It says they uh, went among their friends and their and their relatives and their acquaintances, and they were asking everybody, you know, have you seen him? Where is he? And nobody saw him. And when they finally realized he wasn't even in the caravan, they were in a panic, and they had to turn around and go back. So that would be another day's travel, just the two of them, I imagine unless they had children with them, I don't know, but they had to go, so they'd gone one day forward, and then they had to go one day back. Uh, well, I'm going to skip some of this because of time's sake. So their, their preoccupation with other concerns, you know, and this is, this is natural that after eight days, they'd be anxious to get home, right? Back to their homes, back to, uh, back to the, the carpenter shop, back to work, and etc. So they were anxious to leave and get home. So that preoccupation with other concerns and their presupposition that Jesus was somewhere in their company resulted in a um, return trip delay back to Nazareth of four days for Mo Joseph and Mary. They had traveled a day's journey, that's one, before they realized his absence. And uh, then they had to travel back. That was another day's journey. That would be two. And then it tells us that, uh, I think it's verse 46, that it was after three days that they found him. After three days they found him. And those three days could have been, I don't know, they could have been in addition to the one-day travel and the one-day back. So if they spent three days looking for him in Jerusalem, that would be how many days? Five. One day, one day back, and then three days looking for him. Or it could mean 
one day toward Nazareth, one day back, and then one whole day of searching, and then they found him on the third day. But then, again, they had to go another day back before they'd get to where they were to begin with, right? So it could have been some, their delay was somewhere between four and six days altogether. Either way, they, they lost time because they had been preoccupied with other concerns and they presupposed that Jesus was somewhere with them. And there is, there's a lesson in there, but I don't have time to give it to you, so just think about it. <laughs> don't preoc be preoccupied with other things or don't presuppose that Jesus is always with you. <laughs> okay, now advanced theological learning was not necessary for someone to participate in these question and answer sessions in the, in the temple courtyard. Therefore, the presence of a 12-year-old boy would not have been really anything particularly strange. You know, the doctors of the law wouldn't think it was strange if there was a 12-year-old boy sitting in the crowd. There were probably many 12-year-old boys sitting out there, you know, asking, uh, well, maybe not asking questions so much. They probably were pretty timid at 12 years of age. So mostly maybe the 12-year-old boys in the crowd would have been listening. However, there was something very special about this one particular son of the law because he not only attended these sessions and listened, but he very boldly spoke out. And he showed, when he did speak out, he showed tremendous wisdom such that it says in verse 47, all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. When, when Mary and Joseph finally found Jesus. Where did they find him? They found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. That's what it says. And as I just mentioned, all who heard him were absolutely astonished at what they heard. And the Greek word for astonished literally means that they were amazed out of their minds. I mean, it's like it, this just blew them away how, how smart this young boy was. His wisdom had gotten their attention uh, so much so that rather than having him sit at their feet, which was the common way for a student to learn from a teacher or teachers to sit at the feet. That's why we read of Paul sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. And Mary, remember Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening. Well, we don't find Jesus sitting at the feet of these doctors. Where does it say he is? He's in their midst. Now, that is a place of uh, honor and respect. They had never seen anything like this boy before. They had, I should say they had never heard anything like this boy before. Remember when he was full grown, the religious rulers say, How knoweth this man letters? when he hasn't been trained. He doesn't have a seminary education. How does he know the law? They were amazed then. They were amazed when he was 12 years old. Not only did he wisely hear, you know, part of learning is listening, right? It says in Proverbs 1.5, a wise man will hear and will increase learning. You know, if you're always talking, you don't learn. You have to do a lot of listening to learn. But so not only was he listening, but he, his questions reflected immense insight. You know, sometimes when people come to me and ask me a question, I can tell where they're coming from by the depth of their question. And their, his questions showed tremendous insight. And we can be sure 
that his questions stumped the religious rulers as well. You know, during his public ministry, the Lord Jesus was forever closing the mouths of the proud and hypocritical religious rulers of Israel with his profound questions. Remember the question, uh, from whence is the baptism of John? From heaven or from men? And they couldn't answer. Because they knew if his, they said John the Baptist baptism was from heaven, then he'd say, then why don't you listen to me? Because John told you who I am. But if they said that John the Baptist's baptism was from men, they would infuriate all the people because the people knew John the Baptist was a prophet of God. How about the question, if David called the Lord Lord, then how could the Lord be called David's son? And you know what it says after that question? They never dared to ask him another question. They had asked him a question, and he answered their question. He, you know, Jewish people are notorious for that, and I love it. They always ask, answer a question with another question. And I, I was reminded when I was listening to my tape that I did 11 years ago or whatever, when we did this study before, um, I grew up in a, in a highly Jewish neighborhood of Chicago. My high school was high percentage of Jewish people. And I noticed this, how they always answer, ask, answered questions with questions. And uh, at one point in time, I had a Jewish boyfriend. Actually, he's the one who led me to the Lord. And I asked him, I said, uh, why is it that y your people always answer questions with questions? And he said, we don't really do that, do we? <laughs> I'll never forget that. Oh, all right. So anyway, he, we can be sure he was asking them some questions that just probably were really, really profound. And what time of the year was it? It was the Passover, right? They had just finished the Passover. So perhaps he was asking these elite teachers of Judaism questions regarding the Messianic teachings and the symbolism regarding the Passover lamb. I mean, this would be just like Jesus, you know, sitting there in the midst of all these religious leaders saying, you know, something like, will the Messiah be the fulfillment of all the Passover lambs ever sacrificed offering himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of the entire world? Or he may have asked them questions about Isaiah chapter 53. What about this Messiah who's to be the man of sorrows, the one who would be despised and rejected, even among his own people, the one who would be wounded for man's transgressions, the one who would be bruised for man's iniquities. What about this one, you know, where it says here that by his stripes men would be healed? You know, I, I wonder if he asked questions like these that, you know, showed his deep understanding and which would really get them to thinking. Now, you see this one man scratching his chin there thinking, and what's the reaction of that man there? Doesn't like it, which is typical of what he'd find in the future, too, the responses from the, from the religious re rulers. Well, upon finding her son, Mary spoke words of reproof. I should have had that up there, all right, to Jesus. And yet, even when she did, you know, reprimand him, we find, well, you don't really see this so much in the English, but she used a very tender, motherly word for son in verse 48. She used a word which was the equivalent of saying, child, son, that I have born. 
so she was even even in her reprimand she was gentle it was an affectionate word she was showing a great deal of restraint here in her words with Jesus considering the level of her anxiety you know over the past three days I know that if I found one of my children missing after three days I would have pounced on him <laughs> I would have wanted to choke him to death so she was really I mean this this was a godly woman she was very restrained you know especially finding him so peacefully sitting there in the midst of the doctors um, after she and Joseph had been frantic worried sick all right um, now probably much to her surprise and to Joseph's surprise Jesus did not offer any apology or any excuse for what he had done. Instead, he gently reminded Mary of his mission in life. And as I said when we were reading it, we have in verse 49 the very first recorded words of Jesus. He said, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not, or in other words, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now, those words are very important for several reasons. First of all, because they demonstrate that he was not at fault for this incident. Mary and Joseph were at fault for not having comprehended his priority to do his father's work. Secondly, these words are important because they proclaim his ministry. He came to do what? His father's business. And he had to do it as a must. Now, people have wondered whether Jesus knew all along who he was. You know, that he was the Messiah and the very Son of God. Now, we may not know what he knew as a baby or as a young child, but I can dogmatically say this much, at 12 years of age, his first recorded words tell us that he had no doubt about his purpose or his unique relationship to God because he calls God his father. You know, no Jew would have ever, ever done that. To them, it was considered blasphemous to call God father. And later on, when he's older and he does that, they accuse him of blasphemy. So we don't know if he knew all along. We know at 12 years old he knew who he was and what his mission was. If you, I know I'm going to probably get in trouble time-wise, but if you go over to Hebrews chapter 10, I want to show you something interesting. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. I know the day I discovered it, I was excited. Hebrews 10, look at verses 5 to 7. This, these are um, Jesus' words you could say standing on the edge of heaven right before he's going to leave heaven and enter into Mary's womb. He sa it says, wherefore, when he cometh into the world, that's right before he came into the world, he saith, here he, and he's talking to his father, he's talk Jesus is talking to God his father, he saith, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. In other words, all those sacrificed uh, lambs and goats and bulls and everything over the years did not satisfy God's justice. And then look at verse 7. Then said I, this is Jesus speaking right before he came to earth, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. In other words, the whole book, Bible, is written about him. Lo, I come 
to do thy will, O God. So what we can say, go back to Luke 2, dogmatically is that right before Jesus left heaven to enter into Mary's womb, he knew what his purpose was. He was coming to do his father's will. We know when he was 12 years old, he knew what his purpose was to do his father's will. So you can speculate about when he was a child, what he knew. I don't know. In effect, Christ was saying here to Mary and to Joseph, specifically to Mary, since she's the one that was talking. He was saying, Jesus was saying, 12-year-old Jesus was saying, but why would you search for me? Surely you must understand by now, mother, something of my unique relationship to my father, to God, not to Joseph, to God. Now that I am at the age where I am accountable to be on my own, I must be about his business. In his response, Jesus implied that there was really less of a reason for uh, his parents to be astonished, to be surprised at the fact that he had remained behind and was in the temple with the Bible scholars, than there was for him to be surprised at their search for him. They should have known immediately where they would find him, where he would be. Jesus was really genuinely surprised and even grieved by the fact that his parents had experienced all this unnecessary distress in their search for him when they had all the necessary information about him that could have told them where he was all along. It kind of reminded me of the Lord's words at the end of his life, well, no, after his life, after he was resurrected from the tomb, and there was a woman, another woman named Mary standing outside of the tomb, weeping her head off, and Jesus comes up right behind her, or wherever, right in front of her, and, and she thought he was a gardener, and he said what? Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seeketh ye? You know, why are you weeping when you had all the, the information that you needed to know that I would come, that I, where you could find me and that I would be alive after three days. And I see kind of a comparison here. You know, they're grieving and weeping and frantic for three days because they can't find Jesus and they didn't need to experience all of that grief because they had enough information to know where they could find him. For, well, furthermore, I'll get into some of this later, but uh, if they had really, really known who he was, they shouldn't be reprimanding him. They, he's God. Not only did they have the, the, the truth of the virgin conception, okay, that his father was God, they had all those infancy miracles, they had the testimonies from the shepherds and from Anna and from Simeon and from the wise men, and they had God-sent dreams, but they had had 12 years of watching him grow up completely sinless which had to just amaze them especially when they had other children and saw the difference so they should have understood that his heavenly sonship responsibilities preceded his earthly sonship responsibilities his parents here were really only thinking like you and I would I mean his mothers were going this isn't right that's what we're doing in our minds we're saying this isn't right but they're thinking only in human terms. They're forgetting his unique identity as the Son of God. The term, my father, which the Lord used in verse 29, was used in direct contrast to Mary's words, thy father. Now, Mary, of course, was speaking to Joseph. He was, she was saying, you know, 
how can you do this to, to your father and to me? But Jesus here was telling his parents that he knew who his real father was, and he had to come first, his real father. This is revealed by his words, I must be about my father's business. He had a, a deep sense of responsibility to God, and he understood his mission in life, and it was under deep spiritual conviction. You know, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was leading him. It was under this spiritual con compulsion that he had gone to the temple rather than returning to the caravan and returning to Nazareth. He already, as it says in Psalm 69:2, had a zeal for the house of God. And it was already beginning to consume him. That's another messianic prediction in Psalm 119, 139. Even at 12 years of age, Jesus understood that he must obey the call of the Spirit. And this was, you know, one of, the, this was really the first of many occasions when the Lord Jesus had to do the Father's will. And because he had to do the Father's will, he would be misunderstood by those who sometimes were even the closest to him. In this case, of course, he was misunderstood by his mother and, and father. It says in the next verse that they didn't really understand him. They really didn't understand his unique position as very God of very God. Because uh, if they did, if they really understood, they would realize that as created beings, they had no authority whatsoever to question what the Creator himself was doing. Um, and if you have a problem with thinking he was rebellious here, it says in Isaiah 50, verse 5, this is Jesus speaking, I was not rebellious. He was not rebellious. And, and also it says that he was in favor with God, in favor with man. Later on, we'll look at that in a minute. If he was in favor of, with God, he couldn't be in favor with God if he had sinned here. He did not sin here. It tells us that he did go back to Nazareth with Mary and Joseph, and he was subject unto them. That's in verse 50. He came to do the Father's will, and it was the Father's will at this point in time that he continued to be subject to his parents by obeying them and assisting them with the family. And he assisted them with the family, and, you know, even after Joseph died, and I think he's reason he's waited till he was 30. Well, there's other reasons, but I think he waited till all of his younger brothers and sisters were on their own. He helped support the family after Joseph died. But Jesus was completely obedient and subject to his parents. You have to remember, he was God. They should have actually, technically, when the Passover was finished, they, would have, they should have gone to him and said, do you want to stay around? Do you want to go to the temple? You know, what, what should we do now? If they really, really understood who he was. And they didn't, and Mary didn't, really, even until after he was resurrected. But she did keep all these things in her heart, and she pondered them. You know, even his own brothers didn't believe in him until when? After his resurrection. Well, Jesus, the young man, I'm not going to say much about it, but let's look at verse 52. Um, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This is after he went back with his parents and subjected himself to them. Now, this is all we have. This one verse here is all we have regarding the next 18 years of the Lord's life, from the time he's 12 till the time he's 30. This is one verse. <laughs> one verse, and it says that he grew in four areas. He grew in wisdom. That's speaking of his mental 
ability. He grew, grew again, of course, in stature. That's physical growth. He grew in favor with man, God. That's his spiritual development. And he grew in favor with men. That's his social development. Actually, it doesn't say he grew. It says he increased, which is different than just growing. Increased in the Greek means he chopped his way forward. So, you know, to increase in those areas takes effort, doesn't it? I mean, if you're going to increase in wisdom, if you're going to increase spiritually, if you're going to increase with favor, in favor with God and man, you have, it, you have to work at it. It doesn't just come. It's like chopping your way forward, you know, like with a machete going through a, a field of bamboo sticks or something. He had to work at it, just like you and I do. Okay, that's it. Let's look at very quickly and we'll close. Jesus, the carpenter, and all we know about him as a carpenter is what little bit we find in Mark 6, 3. Look over to Mark 6, verse 3. When they're accusing um, Jesus of not being, you know, not being divine because they know his family, in verse 3 they say, Is not this the carpenter? the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Because they say, you know, this can't be the Messiah. This is the carpenter. We know his family. The only other scriptural information, apart from Luke, that we have regarding the first, well, I should say, about 28 years of Jesus' life, his, his pre-ministerial life is what we just read in Mark 6, 3, where we're told that just like his stepfather Joseph, he was what? What did he do for a living? He was a carpenter. Now, of all the professions Jesus could have chosen, Jesus as God could have chosen. I mean, he could have been a physician, right? Because he is the great physician. He could have been a teacher because he certainly is a great teacher. He could have, well, literally, he could have been anything that he wanted to be. He could have been a lawyer, he could have been a rabbi, he could have been anything, but he chose to be a carpenter. And that really makes a lot of sense when you think about who he is. He is the creator of all that exists. He's the creative carpenter of the entire universe. You know, a carpenter, in effect, creates things, doesn't he? Now, he doesn't create them out of nothing, as God, or Jesus, did with the universe. Ex nihilo, it's called. He created everything out of nothing. A carpenter creates something out of something, but it's still, you know, he creates things, he makes things which are useful to humanity. So in, t in taking up the carpentry trade, of course, from his human side, this is what would be natural because a boy would usually learn the trade of his father. And so here he was following in his stepfather's footsteps, <laughs> his stepfather's footsteps. Um, and uh, But doing this, he was also purposely choosing to identify himself with the bulk of humanity, you know, the common man, the laborer. He himself became acquainted with the feelings and with the experiences of the multitude. He knew what it was like, you know, to work long days and to work with his hands and to, and to be tired at night and to have people complain about the quality of his furniture, or the quality of his yoke or his whatever he was creating. Humanly speaking, this gave him insight into man's daily life situations and man's thoughts and man's struggles, etc. You know, the Lord actually spent six times as long working at the carpenter bench, oops, um, 
than he did in his preaching and teaching ministry. He only spent three and a half years preaching and teaching, but he spent six times as long sitting at the carpenter bench. There he is working with his father behind him. And the meekness and the patience and the humility that all of this demonstrates really is worthy for us to note, especially in light of who he is and, and the power which is his. He could have really just dazzled everybody in Nazareth by creating, um, well, you know, he could just speak into, into being <laughs> a synagogue, a gorgeous, beautiful synagogue for all of them. And then they would all fall down and worship him, right? Or he could have created just with snap of his fingers a beautiful throne chair, you know, that would just amaze everybody. But he didn't. You know, he, he made things the way that any carpenter would have to make them. He um, worked as hard as any other man. And he did that, as it says in Hebrews 2.17, so that in all things he might be made like unto his brethren. The Lord's preparation preparatory years were very important years and Jesus knew that he had to be about his father's will even if it involved 18 years of long hard tedious labor you know hidden away in an obscure town which was even despised by most of the Jewish people Jesus Christ did not fall victim to fleshly impatience by striving to obtain honor and glory on his own you know for himself instead what did he do he waited on God's timing and he spent those preparation years laboring diligently at his trade and you can imagine I'm sure laboring also in God's Word learning more and more about God's Word even though he wrote God's Word so the silent years of the Lord's life were a vital part of his preparation for future ministry his 12-hour days perhaps I mean carpenters work long days spent in the saw pit or at the workbench those were actually years spent building building up his physical stamina which he would definitely have to rely on very much when he walked 2,500 miles all over rugged terrain in Israel teaching and preaching and healing multitudes of people oftentimes with very little rest most of the time with nowhere to even lay his head at night, sleeping on the hard, cold ground with probably very meager amounts of food. His preparatory years made him physically strong, and they also provided him, think of this, with illustrations for his great teachings. Because as he worked among the common people, he observed people, and he was able to then uh, relate to them as he taught them. There are preparation years in our lives, too aren't there there are what we could call carpentry type years which we also need to spend laboring for others and for God and oftentimes these years are spent in hidden obscurity with no public recognition at all I think about David all those years that he spent tucked away on a field out there with just sheep we can't just don't think you can bounce right into to, to ministry without preparing yourself it takes years well we know that with school you know, it takes years to, to get ourselves equipped to serve the Lord. There are just those years that we have to spend in preparation. Like our master, we can only do all to the glory of God after we have learned the discipline of diligent labor and, and become satisfied with being hidden and obscure and even unrewarded for our work for him. I think this is one of the, the failures of ministry. A lot of times these young guys will come out of seminary and, and want to build a great big church and be somebody. 
and they don't realize that maybe for many, many years they have to be tucked away in an obscure little church, maybe with just a tiny, tiny little congregation, and maybe spend the rest of their lives there. You know, God is looking for faithfulness more than he is. He's not impressed with, with size and numbers. I mean, the Lord only had 12, and one of them was a traitor. But we do need to, to learn from Jesus in those first 30 years of his life. We need to learn to be patient and to wait on God's timing. What was he doing all of that time from 12 of age to manly prime? Was he amidst a sawdust mess about his father's business? How did those silent years he spend unknown by family and friend? What kind of yoke was it he made? as he learned his father's trade. What kind of yoke did he make for us? A yoke that was easy, right? And a burden that was light. Okay, thank you for your patience. Let's close in a word of prayer. God and Father, we just again thank you for this lesson and what you have to teach us about the silent years of our Lord's life, years that we really know so little about, but yet they were very important preparatory years that he spent growing and increasing in experience of the ways of the common man. Thank you for a Savior who understands the meaning of work and who has personally experienced some of our own burdens and some of our own weariness and some of our own feelings and our, and our, uh, our labors. It's comforting, Lord, to know that he who now holds a scepter in his hand once held a hammer and a saw in his hands because this really does help us to better relate to the God-man, our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Father, we do praise you for the wisdom which sent Jesus Christ into this world to be a carpenter because when we think about it, what better trade would there be for the carpenter with the capital C of the entire universe, the one who, though all things were made by him, and without him was nothing made. Um, we just we just thank you that he that he can that he did create all things. We thank you for the, the yokes that he has made for us that are easy to wear in which so sufficiently lighten our burdens. And Lord, we would pray that this same carpenter of Nazareth, who is even now preparing a place for us in heaven. He's still about the carpentry business because he's specifically making a place for each and every one of us who know him. We pray, Lord, that he would take our lives, each of us, into his skillful hands and that he would fashion us into beautiful, useful instruments for your eternal kingdom and for your glory.